0: The 20th chapter of the Gospel of John is one of the great chapters on the resurrection in all of Scripture. And it has the discovery of the empty tomb by Mary and then by Peter and the beloved disciple, and then the appearances of Jesus to Mary and then to all the disciples, and the great story of doubting Thomas. Really, it should be called believing Thomas, one of the great stories of belief. In the Bible, on another Easter, we have looked at the story of Mary. Next Sunday, I intend to look at the story of Thomas in this 20th chapter. I say all of that by way of saying that this Sunday, I'm going to abridge this great chapter so that we see its sweep. And the great story of Mary will largely be left out, and the story of Thomas will largely be left out, and other passages will be edited. I do that with fear and trembling, but... I've told you here is an abridged sweep of the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John. This is God's Word. No, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple and said, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb. So the two disciples both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And looking in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. Then Simon Peter came and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths and the handkerchief that had been around his head, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple went in also, and he saw and believed. Mary stood outside by the tomb of Jesus, weeping, and Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned to him and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord, and then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. P.L. Travers is the author of a series of children's books about a magical British nanny named Mary Poppins. In the recent movie, Saving Mr. Banks, The Disney studios tell the story probably deeply Hollywoodized of the 20-year pursuits of Walt Disney to get from Travers' permission to turn her books into a film. Travers' resistance apparently stemmed from the fact that one of the central characters of the book was based on her father, who died when she was eight years old of influenza, but also and more probably of alcoholism. The memory of her imperfect but beloved father was sacred to Travers and she was afraid that Disney was going to turn her father or the character that represented him into a cartoonish and foolish figure. At the climax of the film, Disney pursues Travers all the way to London and lays his heart on the line one last time, he says in the film, trust me, with your precious Mary Poppins. I swear that in every movie house all over the world, in the eyes of the hearts of kids and their mothers and their fathers, for generations to come, your father and George Banks will be honored. Your father and George Banks will be redeemed. Your father and George Banks and all he stands for will be saved. And then he adds, maybe not in life, but in imagination. That's what we yearn for, isn't it? For all our broken dreams and broken hearts and failures and tragedies and painful memories to be put right for our lives. And maybe even more importantly, for the lives of those we love to be redeemed, to be saved. But can they be? Even Disney himself knew that he could honor all of his promises only in imagination, not in life. Two weeks before the opening of Saving Mr. Banks, the London Daily Mail ran a long piece about the life of Travers, She died at the age of 96 with one of the, actually the saddest epitaph I have ever read. It said that in the words of her own grandchildren, at her death, she died loving no one and being loved by no one. We journey through this life. Life is like that. We're here today and gone tomorrow. The Bible says we are like grass. James says we are like mist. The King James says like vapors that appear for a little while and then vanish. The most talented athlete will have muscles which weaken and waste away. The most beautiful model, when she is 100, will not grace the cover of Vogue magazine any longer. All the rich and most powerful will eventually be betrayed by their bodies and die. Our lives are like a mist. And just so that we won't forget that foundational biblical truth, I offer to you this Easter Sunday morning a new Easter litany. It goes like this. Our life is like a mist. And you respond, our lives are like a mist indeed. <laughs> Got that? Let's try it. Our life is like a mist. Our like a mist indeed. Doesn't that just thrill your soul? But that's the biblical truth. We are here today and gone tomorrow. We wither. We pass through life. Our flesh is temporary and disposable. And human beings are haunted by death. And the fear that death will have the final word. That is the theme that reverberates through Edgar Allan Poe's great poem, The Raven. Do you remember it? This is also a Cruel synopsis. It's a rather long poem. Here are a few lines that I've edited down together. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, suddenly there came a tapping, a rapping at my chamber door. I flung the shutter open, and in their steps a stately raven. Quoth the raven. Never mind. Prophet said I, whether tempter sent or whether tempest tossed, tell me truly I implore, is there is there a bomb in Gilead? Quoth the raven, nevermore. And it goes on with stanza after stanza, you might like to look at it, and at the very end the narrator says The lamplight o'er him streaming throws a shadow on the floor, and my soul from out that shadow shall be lifted. Nevermore. The poem intones the sad finality that seems to say, Nevermore will love return. Nevermore will youth return. Nevermore will parents return. Nevermore will life return. Nevermore. It uh, conjures up that haunting line from Matthew Arnold's Dover Beach. It brings the eternal note of sadness in. Now, on that cheery note, there are two regular ways in which human lives, without really trying very hard, try to deal with that eternal note of sadness. By diversions and by denial and by pleasures and by sensuality. Sensuality and denial. Bill Heibel tells of an encounter he had with a woman which he thought was doing both. He was studying the Bible at a restaurant, and a woman saw him and reached over and said, Why are you reading that? And I guess inviting a kind of edgy conversation, he said, Well, because I don't feel like going to hell when I die. And she said back, Well, there is no such thing as heaven or hell. And he said, Well, why do you say that? Well, everybody knows that when you die, the candle goes out. Poof. You mean to tell me there's no afterlife? No. That you mean we can do pretty much anything we want to? That's right. Like uh, no judgment day, no heaven or hell, no redeeming or consuming of all things, not putting things together, not standing before a holy and loving God to give account, nothing like that? No. Well, that's fascinating to me. Where did you hear that? Well, I read it somewhere. Hmm, well, what's the name of the book? Well, I forget the title. Uh, Well, do you remember the author? No, I don't remember his name. Uh, Well, did he write any other books? Well, I don't know. Well, then Heibel said, how do you know that two years later he didn't write another book in which he said he was wrong and there is a heaven and hell? Well, she said, that's possible, I guess, but unlikely. Well, Heibel said, all right, let's get this straight. You are basing your eternal destiny on what an author said, whose name you can't remember, in a book you don't know about. And uh, you can't even recall the title. Have I got that straight? And she said, uh, that's right. And then Hybels, because he had invited an edgy conversation to start with, summed it up this way. You know what I think? I think you made it up. I think you made it up because it's a very discomforting thing to think about heaven and hell. It's very unnerving to face a holy God in the day of reckoning. I think you made it all up. Sweet conversation on an Easter day. Well, we do make things up, don't we? To deal with the harshness of life and to rationalize our selfish desires. Fair enough. The question is, is that all we can do? Can the broken be put right? Not just in imagination, but in life. We hunger for that. Because we are not completely mists. There is something about us that is different. We differ from the mists and the grass and the flowers that fade away, that are here today and gone tomorrow, because we are conscious of our lives and we are conscious of, of our coming deaths. That is our great burden and our great glory that we share with no other creatures. The mist doesn't know that it's here today and gone tomorrow. It doesn't care, but we do. We struggle against death and we wonder about life. No other creature does that. That's why Marcus Zusak ends his novel, The Book Thief, actually allowing death to have the final word, literally. And when death speaks the last word in that novel, what he says is, I am haunted by humans. And this is the reason why. Human beings alone have this instinct, this sixth sense, that death is not the last word. That life doesn't end with the grave, and that we have a hunger that we know this world cannot satisfy. In the Legion of Honor Museum downtown in Golden Gate Park rests the carcophagus of the Egyptian mummy, Erit hu uru It's a fairly recent mummy, only from 300 B.C. But carved under that wood sarcophagus is Spell-72, from the Egyptian Book of the Dead. I've looked it up. Here's a rough translation. It goes, Hail to you possessors of right souls without falsehood who exist always in the borders of eternity. Save me from the aggressor in this land. Give me my voice to speak. I know the great God. He opens up the eastern horizon of the sky. Now, I'm not an Egyptologist, and I don't have a right to interpret that, but if a lay reading is acceptable, then I'm struck by how many themes this Egyptian spell in the face of death shares with Scripture. It sees that there is something about our afterlife which is tied to living right and to righteousness, There's something about we have to reach out for to be saved. And from the knowing this great God is important, the one who holds the heavens and who opens up the horizons. There's a plea, there's a call, there's a knowing, there's a saving, there's a righteousness which is needed. I was actually surprised by that. I went to it to get a negative illustration and found found some support. Our text today begins with a group of broken, fearful, dispirited disciples who are fleeing from the defeat and failure and death of their master. First, Mary finds an empty tomb. Then John and Peter follow her to it. Then Mary meets the risen Christ. Then the disciples in a closed room do. Notice several things. Mary does not assume anything like a resurrection. She isn't looking for it. She doesn't know about it. She sees the empty tomb, and the logical conclusion is that someone has stolen the body. These are not credulous, gullible people. Then Peter and John, the other disciple, probably John, ran to the tomb. John outran Peter. He looks in, Peter comes, and the aggressive Peter goes in. And then John comes in after him. The verbs on seeing change. The second time when John goes in, it says he bleppos. He doesn't just observe, he bleppos. He sees and believes. But what they observe before that are the grave clothes. uh, Coiled and rolled. Notice how different this is from the description of the grave clothes of Lazarus. Chapter 11 of John, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with them. Jesus said, unbind them and let them go. Whatever happens to Jesus is similar to but different from what happens to Lazarus. His body is similar but different. It is physical, but the fact that it doesn't have to be unwrapped says it is different. Tom Wright calls this a trans physical body. It is more physical and more real than our bodies. but it will never die. It's heavier. It is weightier. We have five senses. Perhaps our resurrection bodies will have 50. And Jesus, this resurrection body goes into a closed room, but he eats with them and he invites people to touch them. It's real. It is physical. And in this closed room, the disciples are discouraged. And notice when Jesus comes there and when he tells Mary to go ahead of him, he doesn't say, go to, go to speak to those disciples who have betrayed me, who couldn't even stay awake for 60 minutes in my hour of deepest need. Go to them and tell them they better have something darn good to say to me when I appear. Instead, he tells Mary to go to my brothers. And when he gets to them, he gives them gifts. Conquering kings. When they come back from war. When they come back from conquest, bestow gifts. So the risen Christ comes full of gifts. He gives peace. He gives power. He gives purpose. We'll look at those next week. That's why Paul in Ephesians 4 quotes Psalm 56 and saying, when he led captivity captive and he ascended on high, he gave us gifts. Jesus said, I went into the throat of death and I punched a hole in it. And if you believe in me, When death comes and swallows you up, when death comes and embraces you, you will be able to come out of it the way I did. You'll be able to follow me right out to the hole that I have created. This is the promise of the resurrection. The resurrection is the assurance that God's love conquers death and hell. It is the promise that the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead will regenerate you. And if you believe in him and cling to him. Will make you alive. It is the power which brings life from death. The power of the resurrection means. There is nothing that can prevent you or him from carrying out his purpose. There is no power that can withstand him. No enemy that can defeat him. No influence that can match him. No evil that can dissuade him. No Possible antagonist that can derail him. No foe can stand against him. No other name can oppose him. The power which brings the dead to life is the power by which Christ even now rules and reigns and is alive and present in this very room and throughout every nook and cranny of his wounded world. That's the promise. But just affirming it doesn't make it the truth. How do we know that this isn't just another, what Freud would call, wish projection? That it isn't just another insistence of being saved only in our imagination, but not in life? I'm glad you asked. Rabbi Zacharias said, God has put enough into the world to make faith in him a most reasonable thing but he's left enough out to make it impossible to live by sheer reason or observation alone. God has given us, in this passage, several evidences. I have spent whole Easter sermons on this kind of section. I'm not this Sunday, but let's just, and pass him, with a light touch, see what evidences there are many more that are here in this one of many passages on the resurrection in Scripture. First, there's the empty tomb. There is the fact that the tomb was empty 2,000 years later. We can know that with certainty. Why? Because if the enemies of Jesus could have presented the body they would have, the world is strewn by leaders of religious movements and messianic figures whose tombs are revered. Just... A few yards from where the body of Beulah Akins lies from this church fellowship in Novato is a million-dollar marble mausoleum of the founder of one particular Islamic sect that is erected there. There is no tomb for Jesus because no body was ever found or ever will be. If the Romans could have produced the body, they would have. The tomb was empty. Second, there is the appearances. We can accurately, historically, objectively, and scientifically date the claims of the appearances of Jesus to Mary and to the disciples and to the 500 within six years of the events. In ancient history, that is virtually contemporaneous. The only reason a contemporaneous claim like that would have been made could have been made, is basically if you know your contemporaries will back you up. Third, look at the combination of the two factors, the empty tomb and the appearances. The appearances and the empty tomb, they need each other and they have each other. Only the tomb was empty and there were no appearances. It would make sense, would it not, to say what Mary said, someone stole the body. If it were only the appearances and... The tomb wasn't empty, it would make sense, would it not, to say this is some kind of hallucination or wish fulfillment or inspiration, empty tomb and appearances, appearances, empty tomb. They go together. Fourthly, the witnesses are women. The Christian faith has elevated the status of women to where it should be in God's good creation, but in ancient Israel Women were not even allowed to give testimony in a court. If you committed a horrendous offense and it was witnessed only by women, you would go scot-free. Why, if the story was made up, would the empty tomb first be discovered by women? And why would Jesus appear first to women? The only plausible answer is that because the empty tomb was first discovered by women and Jesus appeared to women. Fifthly, it's popular in our day and time to say, you know, those were gullible, pre-modern people that would believe everything. That's intuitively comfortable to us, but it's wrong. If you think your worldview makes it difficult to accept the resurrection, it is equally, perhaps even more so difficult for the ancient worldview to accept it. To the Greeks... If there was eternal realm, it would never come back physically. And to the Hebrews, the idea of resurrection, which is by no means universal, was always, at the end of history, was always to everyone. If the resurrection has come, has history come to an end? Has everybody been risen? There was no concept, no understanding, no foretaste of an individual figure coming back from the dead. If our worldview makes it difficult, so was the ancient worldview. Something happened which exploded and transformed a worldview in a second. Those are evidences for other sermons and other days. I like them. My mind operates that way. I have more I can share with you. But since my college days, there's another kind of objection. Something has emerged in the last 40 years. The objection runs something like this. Well, I don't really care if there are natural laws, which uh, we think that's incompatible with outside of ourselves. There are personal laws inside of me that I care about. And whether or not Jesus Christ rose from the dead, you know, that's about as interesting to me as a UFO, or reports of uh, planets and other cosmoses if I don't think it affects me, if I don't care about it, if it doesn't touch my heart. I guess I didn't mean to have that tone of voice in my voice. uh, I think the first thing to say to that is get real, get right, and that's the wrong framework. But let's accept that framework for a second. And let's see that even in the ancient records, even in these first pre-postmodern minds. I don't think I've ever used that phrase before. In the pre-postmodern world of the Bible, the relevance of the resurrection of human life was made directly and immediately. The first uh, disciples, looking back to the resurrection, understood what they did not understood before, something more than just his death, happened on Calvary that day. Looking back from beyond the resurrection, they will say it wasn't just he who died. Something about me died. Something that I am sick and dying of died. All of my failures and heartaches and broken dreams. He took upon his shoulders. He paid the ultimate sacrifice. His death was my death, that his life might be my life. What we want, what we need, what we yearn for most is to be saved, not just in our imaginations, but in life. Because of that, the stories we love most the stories we tell again the most, the stories we yearn for and that we return to, the stories by which we are most changed, all have happy endings. In these stories, bad things upon bad things upon bad things happen, but then, in an unexpected and unlooked-for way, a happy ending comes. And it covers and incorporates and it transforms all the bad things. Jesus said, well, look at this next week. Look at my wounds, the scars in my hands. At the end of J.R.R. Tolkien's great ring cycle, a character asked Gandalf, does this mean, does all that's happened, does that mean that everything sad is going to come untrue? And Gandalf says, yes, everything sad is going to come untrue but our joy will be the greater. Our joy will be the deeper for everything said once having been true. The resurrection welcomes us into the heart of all things. The resurrection is the foretaste of God's recreation and completion of all things. The Bible tells us God is going to present you glorious and perfect before his throne if you claim Jesus Christ as your Lord. On that day, The prophet Zechariah says that God will rejoice over you with singing. That means that on that next resurrection day, God will sing a song over us that is the greatest song that has ever, ever, ever been heard. It is the song everybody in this room wants to sing and reaches out for when we do sing. Every fiber of your being, whether you know it or not is made for and wants to sing that song. Every musician that has ever composed, every musician that has ever played, every singer who has ever sung, whether they know it or not, is reaching out. And you will never ever hear that song unless the notes of the resurrection have marinated into your soul until you have reached out to Christ who in the resurrection is reaching out to you. And you will never be whole. Until he has sung that melody into your heart, you will never be complete. Until you have joined the chorus of that great resurrection choir, whose melody began on that first Easter day, and which will swell on that coming resurrection day in which God adds all his saints together to sing his song of glory and praise in an explosion of joy that will know no end. Living and holy God, we stand together in your eternal debt and to sing your eternal praise. We thank you for the life and the death and the resurrection and the present reign of your Son, into whose life of love you invite us to be changed and saved, not just in imagination, but in life. May it be so in Jesus' name. Amen.